0: You are listening to The BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. We discuss social justice, childhood trauma, current events, hip hop, and so much more. Now, here's your host, Michael Arrington.
1: BU Podcast, me and Mike Arrington here. Uh, We're gonna have a good show today. One of my guests um, is a renowned—I don't even know what you would call um, her—but she's been, you know, instrumental in a lot of major record deals over the past, I'd say, thirty-some odd years. She's been an integral part in a lot of artists or a lot of companies um, or a lot of artists' careers in uh, making sure that they either got out of bad deals. And in a better deals or got out of bad deals and man, we're independent. She's been integral in a lot of my success in regards to just kind of knowing what my worth is, kind of getting a better understanding of what contracts look like, what ownership looks like, what publishing looks like. I met her years ago at one of the music conventions. I want to say to Gavin, probably back in 95, maybe. 96, and she's always been like hella cool, man, every time I've ever seen her, every time I've reached out, she's taken a minute to kind of, you know, give me the ins and outs of different things, give me her perspective of different things, even when the information wasn't something I wanted to hear, she was honest enough to uh, let me know what that, you know, what it it was, and so I appreciate that. So, we're going to get into a conversation in regards to, you know, publishing and, record deals, management, just kind of a one-on-one of those who those aspiring artists out there who want to get into this record this record business and don't really have an understanding of one, how cutthroat it is, two, how you have to really, really know your worth and you have to really, really uh, have the ability to bet on yourself. Things are different than they were in traditional deals back, you know, some 30, 40 years ago. You know because of streaming and it's easily accessible to make records now whereas before the record you know company was the only way to make records and put records out you really don't have that issue now so it would behoove you to know as much as you can to be able to want to put out records and want to make money from records right a lot of people can put records out making money is the goal or at least at some point it will be so She's a very, very good resource to have. Our conversation will be dope. Uh, But to kind of give you, like, some of my struggles in the music business, man. So uh once upon a time, I had a deal with, I won't even say their name, but uh signed me to a deal, gave me a $30,000 advance, told me to come back six months later with a record. Uh, In about three months, they decided to close down their black music department. And so they essentially just, you know, uh, got rid of my deal. Like, hey, look, you keep the money, man. No harm, no foul. We we apologize, but uh, good luck. (laughs) Right. And so this was about 96, maybe 97. And so I went and tried to get another deal thinking, that, oh, you know, got one deal, you get another deal. Right. Wasn't as easy as I thought. Went to a lot of major labels. You know, like I said, this is like ninety six, so this was like the advent of the bling bling era and the cash money era. So it was a lot more commercialized then than it was just maybe two years prior, where a lot of underground cats like myself were getting signed to to major labels. And um I couldn't I just couldn't get a deal, man. I I sat with everybody, Geffen. DreamWorks, when it first started, a lot of labels, man, Atlantic. Uh, and I just couldn't, I couldn't strike, you know, it would, and it was, it was so frivolous back then, too, because they would like fly me out to New York, put me up in hotels, and take me to, you know, concerts, and, and then, you know, yeah, we'll talk Monday, and then never talk, right? Or i sit down with them, and the meeting seemed good, and like, well, you know, we'll get back to you, we'll get our lawyers to formulate paperwork, and then I never hear back from them. So it was just crazy. And so I couldn't really get a deal. Long story short, I kind of got discouraged, kind of quit for a minute. A friend of mine told me to do one last demo. So we put together a demo, shopping it around, really couldn't get any traction with it. I ran into my guy, DJ Repmatic, at either Aaron's or Fat B's. I want to say it was Aaron's, at a record store, I was record shopping. He was record shopping, and he was like, Yo, you should try my guy Matt over at Blackberry. Um essentially he just been doing kind of breakbeat compilations, but you know, give it a try. See what's up. So I went over there, I played one song, he signed me off that, and that's how I got, you know, my first two records were that's how they were able to come out on Ill Boogie Records, which Blackberry turned into Ill Boogie later. And it was good, but what I didn't understand was the business, how the business works. And, you know, for as much money as I was supposed to make, I didn't make, but I learned like music biz one-on-one. I learned about publishing. I learned about masters and ownership and all that type of stuff. And the fact that, you know, I was able to walk away with my masters was a win for me anyway. And so over the years, those two records in particular, have had some kind of commercial success, but I was able to because I own the masters. Was able to do a lot of music licensing before that was really a thing, and you know those first two albums have been able to sustain my career financially since. And that first album came out two thousand, second album came out two thousand one, and I've made about eleven records since and been able to tour and all that type of stuff. But those get heavy rotation still in the music licensing and commercial realm. And so I said all that to say that it's important that you have ownership and you have an understanding of what that means. You have an understanding of the power that that has. And we'll get into some of that during my conversation with Wendy. But um just wanted to share that story, kind of let you know kind of what this thing looks like, man. It's not as glamorous and glitzy as you think it is. Um It can be but like, you know, the people that you see now that are super duper successful are really the outliers, right? It's kind of like going to the NBA, like everybody you knew in high school could play basketball, play football, baseball, or whatever. And then even the ones that were super duper and went to college, not all those guys made it to the NBA or NFL or major league baseball. So it's kind of one of those things you have to really, really know the business music is different now you can kind of put your own music out and be able to have a little career and be able to make some decent money from selling your you know your product your merchandise your music you know um but like anything man knowledge is power so hopefully this will kind of give you some guidance to where you need to go and how you need to you know kind of navigate the terrain in the music industry so so we'll be back with Wendy day BU Podcast, Mike Arrington. Oh.
0: You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington.
1: So that's right, we're back to BU Podcast, Mike Arrington. I have my guest today. Um, I don't even know where to start. Is uh, a living legend. Uh-huh. She's been kind of behind the scenes on a lot of amazing things in the music industry. So, you know, give it up for my girl, Wendy Day. Uh, Wendy, how are you?
0: I'm awesome, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So, let the people know who you are and what you do.
0: Absolutely. Um... I really do a couple of things. I run the not-for-profit organization, Rap Coalition, and that's an advocacy organization that helps artists that are in bad situations, whether it's a bad label deal with a major or a bad production deal or a bad management contract. We, excuse me, we help pull artists out of bad deals. And then the for-profit side of what I do is called Power Moves. And Power Moves educates artists. We um, help artists that have investors make money with their music. So we teach them hands-on how to put out music in today's incredibly oversaturated economy. And we teach them how to make money.
1: I mean, that's awesome. And that's kind of like where this portion of my career is kind of gone into more kind of mentorship and advocacy for people who've been stuck in bad deals. Um, a lot of that, if I'm honest, a lot of that I got from you. I don't know. I don't, you probably don't remember because it was so long ago. But when I met you, I was in a bad management situation. And we had a very, very quick conversation as to why one why it was bad and two why I needed to get out and and it was really really brief As A matter of fact I think we were it was at the Gavin or something and we were just walking and it was real quick it was like I don't know maybe 45 seconds but that 45 Seriously? seconds wow. changed every they changed the whole trajectory of my career
0: oh man that's awesome
1: so that's and I was really like awesome. oh that was probably like 94 95.
0: Okay, I'm early. Like, even wow. I was
1: even making records. I was just an unbecoming rapper that had been on the radio a few times at that point. So so tell me this, what got you into the music business?
0: Um, I came as a fan. I started listening to rap in 1980 um, when I was riding my dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I loved the energy and the passion of the music. And then as I got more into the culture, I started hearing stories about my favorite artists getting jerked, artists like Eric B and Rakim and X-Clan. Right. And I just felt that somebody should do something about it. And who better than me? Because I had the energy. Right. So I started um, a not-for-profit I started doing educational seminars at ASCAP in New York to educate artists on what was fair and acceptable. And then I started matchmaking artists with powerful entertainment attorneys who were willing to do work pro bono. So we were pulling artists out of bad deals for free to help them grow their career. That was in 92 when I started. Round about 94, 95, I realized that just pulling an artist out of a bad deal wasn't enough. So I started doing deals for artists because I'd seen so many bad deals, right? Right. That I knew what a good deal kind of looked like. So I started negotiating deals for artists that had some leverage into some good deals. And the first deal that I worked on was Master P's deal. Right. That's... That was a nice deal to have under my belt as my first deal. It's definitely a good resume resume
1: bullet point. So talk to me about getting a record deal in, let's say, 1994 versus today. Like, it's vastly different.
0: It's vastly different. Um, First of all, back in 94, it was really challenging to do it yourself. Today, you almost have to. In fact, I won't even say almost. Today, you have to start out independently and prove to record labels that you have value and reduce their risk a little bit to show them that you're a worthy signing. So today there's more proof of concept than there was in the nineties, the but it's also a lot easier to work records. And I say that as somebody who still works records. You know, back in the 90s, we had to press up product. We had to get it into stores. We had to go from city to city. We had to lug them around, sell them out of the trunk of our car. Right. And it was very challenging today because of the Internet and streaming. There's really not much to lug around. We still have to go out in real life and do stuff. But most of what we do is digital. It's social media based. It's um influencer marketing-based, it's spreading awareness, albeit in a very oversaturated industry, but it's spreading awareness, and that's much easier online than it was physically. And And remember how time-consuming it was to go from city to city yeah. and how expensive it was.
1: Yeah, I remember doing radio tours in the, the yes. 2000s, man, and just going from city to city, just yes. radio shows, not even you know, live shows, just like going to right. each college radio station, major radio station.
0: Exactly. Promo tours.
1: Right. I remember how fun those was. Though. I missed those days. Yeah. Um, we still so do those. At yeah. company,
0: we still, we still do the live hands on, you know, touch your, your fans, kiss babies, take pictures.
1: Right. I think it's still necessary.
0: For, it is. Know,
1: for is
0: Online is not enough. You can't just do online.
1: Yeah. You just can't do it. You got to be in front of people and, and really Correct. in real it's life. It's like
0: running for office. Right.
1: Exactly. Uh, talk to me about ownership. So I had a young artist uh, promoter try to book me for a show and then they, they said I wasn't popular enough. I didn't have enough views on YouTube or whatever the case may be. Uh, <laughs> and then I kind of told him, I was like, look, I kind of like have shifted my, my career over to licensing and and, and doing music for TV awesome. shows. So that's kind of where my check is. So if you don't <clears> want, <throat> you know, you don't want to book me, I understand. But my prices don't change. Right. You know what I'm saying? So he didn't he didn't like that too much, but he, he was also interested in ownership and in publishing and those types of things. I know that's kind of one of your forte. Talk to me or talk to the people about how important it is for ownership.
0: It's incredibly important. It's it's where the control and the wealth come into play in music is ownership not necessarily just the money but I mean the wealth the the money that your children's children's children are gonna are gonna live on you know I read an article recently that irv Gotti sold half of the yes. masters for murder Inc for 300,000, uh, I was 300 million excuse me and that 300 million came because he had ownership of the masters instead of Def Jam having ownership. So that right there tells you the importance of ownership of masters. Publishing is the same. You want the ownership so that you can license your music to someone else to to utilize. Like you were mentioning, getting your songs in, in um, ads or on video games or TV or film the way that you the way that you do that is you have ownership of the publishing it gives you the right to sign off and allow somebody to use your music for a certain price and you set that price it's up to you and the person you're negotiating with to decide what makes sense financially
1: right so that actually bleeds into my next question as far as a administration deal and a publishing deal i love uh, I admin mean, deals ex- explain to, to to the people what the difference is and then the importance
0: absolutely And and let me start by saying up front that I'm very biased. There's a lot of people out here that love co-publishing deals. I do not. I see them as an artist gambling on the fact that they will not be successful. And that's why they take a co-pub deal. But a co-publishing deal is where someone comes along and offers you money for half of the ownership of your publishing. And they usually step in very early in an artist's career because that's when artists need money the most. Right. And they advance somebody anywhere from $5,000 to a million dollars for half of the ownership. And they're doing that because they know the value is going to be so much more. Right. So if artists could just hold out a little bit longer, right. they could keep ownership An administration deal is where you go to somebody to collect your money for you. You can't possibly collect your publishing yourself. It would be a more than full-time job. So you go to a publishing company, you do an administration deal. They're called admin deals. And- they will collect your money and then keep a percentage of what they've collected. You keep a hundred percent ownership, but right. they'll take 10 or 15% for going and collecting your money for you. They're just taking a percentage of income, not a percentage of ownership. And I really like those better.
1: Yeah, I do too. I had a, uh, somebody a couple of years back offered me a hundred thousand dollars for my catalog for 50% of it. And as enticing as it was, I was like, man, if he's offering me this, and I Man, had to. It worth, right. It's probably worth quadruple that, you know. And so then exactly. a company named Song Trust came around years later and Love I started them. working with them. And and I I probably made that money hand over fist since then. So um, exactly. that's how it works. So the music business, you know, I know it's fun and seems like it's free and easy and everybody kind of, you know, thinks everybody makes money or whatever, but give them the real deal of what it is for art because people don't like I know a lot of young artists they think it's fun they think it's it's easy and it is fine, but it's not easy it's not easy it may be slightly easier before. than it was maybe 20 30 40 years ago but easier yes yeah easier but it's still yeah. work involved like I know it's a lot of work me doing tours is uh it's a shitload of work you know what I'm saying like to get and I never do the same show twice so right. It's always constant, having to learn new stuff, trying to figure out crowds, figure out these things. So explain to people why, one, that's a very, very uh, false myth, and two, what the reality is.
0: The reality is that you really have to work hard because you have to outwork everybody. As you know, it's oversaturated, and you are the king of hard work. So Mm -hmm. it's really funny for me to be saying this to you. But Mm -hmm. you have to outwork everybody else. You've got to stand out. You've got to be the person whose music is getting out there by any means necessary. And it's like having five full-time jobs, as you know. So you've got the job of social media. You've got the job of um, making music. You've got the job of performing the music. You've got the job of creating content and posting on TikTok. You've got the job of of checking all your stats and seeing, you know, where is your music doing well, what's working for you and what's not. So it's all these full-time jobs. And the money comes, but it comes very slowly. For example, if you're a new artist and you start releasing money to music today, you're probably not going to see income for anywhere from a year to two years, right? maybe even three years, because it's just the things you have to do to build awareness, take time. And then once you start streaming, it, it takes three months for your checks to start coming, Your performance royalty checks, like BMI and ASCAP, they're going to take anywhere from nine months to a year and a half to start rolling in. So your show money usually comes first, but you know yourself, like to get shows, there has to be a demand for you. So you might be the king of Oakland and you might be able to get $5,000 a show because there's enough fans to come to a show, but a new artist might not be the king of Chicago and may not be able to get paid to do a show in Chicago because nobody knows who they are yet. Exactly. It takes a while to get paid.
1: Yeah. People don't understand that. And it's like, you know, especially if you go through the royalty route through, you know, ASCAP BMI and whatnot, it takes like what I do, what I record and release today won't even hit their register till the end of this year, but I won't get paid for it until probably this time next year or the year after. Correct. Right. I learned that the hard way.
0: (laughs) You don't you don't know that really until you have a single. I was working with little Donald and we had a hit record called Do Better and it dropped in February of 2018. And I didn't see his ASCAP. And we went to radio in in May of 2018. But I didn't really see his check starting to come in for a year to a year and a half. It was crazy.
1: Right. It's just, it just takes time. And, and it's one of those industries that um it moves at a snail's pace. It does. If you Show over- money comes first
0: and then your merch comes.
1: Right. The merch comes. So if you're really, really good at putting out content and that's, you know, very, very good content, then over time, once it sets, yes. you're getting paid consistently or whatever. And that's yes. a trick that people don't understand.
0: Yes. So over the
1: last 30 years, what has been the biggest surprise you've seen in the music industry?
0: Um... I'm going to give you a positive one and a negative one. Okay. So one of my biggest shocks was when the internet came into vogue, Mike, I thought that people would do research and learn how the music industry worked. And I thought it would make it much, much easier. And with the amount of misinformation out here, and the fact that for some reason, artists don't want to put in the time to learn how the music business works, that just kind of shocked me because when I was coming up in the nineties, there was no internet. So we learned everything by doing, we banged our head and that's how we learned not to bang our head. Right. Or we learned from building relationships with people that came before us. For me, that was E40 and too short. I learned how they were doing what they were doing and then brought it into Twistus camp and started to apply it. Right. So there was no internet to learn. Once the internet came along, I thought, wow, this is going to make it so much easier and so much better. And it didn't. And that really shocked me. Right. Um, a, a good shock. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm being greedy and taking too. Is that okay? <laughs> That's fine. Um, one of the great, that was a bad shock, right? One of the great shocks is how many people who want to be artists, it's become so much cheaper to record like in your bedroom and then upload to the internet. So what used to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in the nineties to make an album, you can make an album now for five to 10,000. If you you know, if you, if you so desire, there's many more producers out here. There's many more styles of rap. So what it's done in a positive way, as annoying as it is that it's oversaturated. One of the great positives is that it's taken the entire genre of hip hop and made it the number one genre in the world of music. And I think that's amazing. So it's spread an entire culture bigger and better around the world so that now when we go to do um synchronization it's it's easier to get placement so advertisers want rap unlike the 90s where they were like rap no we want nothing to do with it so that's a huge positive
1: yeah definitely i think for me the biggest the biggest surprise is that um one it's easily accessible to right just record like i during the pandemic i recorded what forty six songs and turned them into four albums that I released in the I four months period, right? And so I, I was that, able to man. do it myself. And you didn't
0: have as much competition from the majors because they were not recording.
1: Exactly. So, so
0: everybody depended on the and everybody had time to listen to music,
1: right? And so it was kind of like it was, it was like a pit stop to where like oh, let's listen to something new because I don't have anything to do and I can't go anywhere. So yes. <laughs> yes, yes, so it, it worked out. But um, explain to me um, about music managers. What is a music manager?
0: Um, A music manager is usually the first person that an artist hires when they can no longer manage themselves, when they they actually need help. And a manager is somebody who helps you steer the ship, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's the person that shares your vision and helps you get from point A to be and then to C and then to D. There's sort of somebody that shares your vision, but is able to help you progress and move to the next levels as those levels present themselves. What a manager is not is an investor. They're not somebody supposed to invest in your career. They're not a booking agent. They're not supposed to go and get you shows. Some can because they've got the right relationships. And a manager is not a babysitter. It's not somebody who is supposed to help you with your entire life and organize your baby mamas and figure out your life for you. You know, it's somebody that's helping you build your career and helping you get to the next level. But they've really got to share your vision. And you've got to be, as an artist, you've got to be a little bit careful when you bring one into your movement because they get paid by percentage. So they make anywhere from 15 to 20% of your income. If you've got no income, that means they're making 20% of nothing. So in a perfect world, they're not a charity. So they, they want to be making money as a manager, right? Right. So you've got to really have something already going on and popping where they can just apply their connections and experience and get you to the next level.
1: Right. I've been pretty lucky over the years. I've had, I've never had really, really good managers just because I work harder than them. And I feel like if I'm working harder than you, I don't need to give you 15%. Of no, I do. But I've always had a good attorney that has always helped me with different things and was always able to yes. connect me with booking agents and, you know, and those types of things, the sponsorship stuff. Awesome. So, you know, Desiree Gordy was one of my first um, attorneys or whatever the Barry Gordy's daughter she was able to put me in a room with all these you know, extraordinary people. So that's networking awesome. is the key for me. I've been a network junkie. That's how I got into the business, man. Taking Razzcast to the wake-up
0: show is how I got into the business. Oh, that's awesome. He's my favorite rapper. You know, it's 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 amazing because you have always outworked everybody. And you've always stayed independent. And you've always made the lion's share of the money yourself. And there are no words for how much I respect that.
1: I appreciate that. I, I really got to like, I remember going to Russell Simmons in 2003 saying, Man, look, I'm trying to get a deal. He's like, I heard of you, but I don't want to sign you because I know you're going to read your contract. So he was like,
0: <laughs> You can do this yourself.
1: <laughs> he was like, You can do this yourself. You're smart enough to do it yourself. <laughs> and so that was always, that was kind of like, I remember walking away feeling defeated, but after it registered, it made sense. And I was like, You know like you that,
0: were. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. So, you know, sometimes things happen and, and we feel like it's a negative, And years later, we learn like it was a blessing because we dodged a bullet. Right.
1: It was it was That's definitely a blessing for sure. Um, what happened to the conventions like the Gavin and those types of things? Why did they disappear from from hip hop? That's how I met people like you. So I was able to get yes. good information and network. It was like a, the best place to network.
0: I miss them so much. I think that what happened in hip hop is that we splintered so much. Um, We kind of became two factions, the older segment and the younger segment. And as older folks, we didn't really embrace the youth. So they kind of, you know, put up the hand to us. Right. Um, And, and now the conventions that I do see are really just, like my generation all sitting around and talking to each other being ineffective. And nothing's really being gained from the conferences, in, in my opinion, that exist today. Um it's very hard to get people together. It's very expensive. The internet has taught us that we can do Zoom calls for, right. for free, that we don't have to get on a plane or or you know, FaceTime anybody to talk anymore. We can actually do things On the internet, more cost effectively, but we lose something in that face to face and that being able to touch and hug somebody and, you know, really feel their energy. We lose a lot from that.
1: Yeah, I like I said some of the best relationships I got and garnered from this this industry was from conventions like the Gavin, Agreed. Jack the rapper and those types of things.
0: Yes. So- That's how I built my career was going to those and speaking on panels and I remember when when I first started I was really broke. I remember bootlegging passes. Yeah. I would <laughs> I would see somebody with the pass and say, "Can I borrow that?" I'd run to Kinkos, I'd bootleg it and come back and you know, that's how I would get into the conferences because I couldn't afford the, the $200 ticket.
1: Right. You and me both. I think uh, my man BJ over at Patchwork was he had taught me that that hustle. So we he would get a couple passes and then we would go to Kinko's and get 10 more. And then then he was exactly. like, look, I'm going to get 10 more. You're going to sell five. Exactly. <laughs> oh, so, that was awful in and of itself. So.
0: And that and that would pay for our transportation to wherever you wherever the conference was, whether it was New Orleans or right. San Diego or wherever.
1: Right, right. So last question I asked all my all my guests. Uh if you can have the opportunity to have dinner with anybody dead or alive, name five people you'd have dinner with.
0: Malcolm X, hands down. I I absolutely um he's one of my heroes and he's absolutely somebody that I would want to sit down with and really pick their brain um tupac because i miss him i had the opportunity to work with him and we were close but we weren't super close and i would love to have the opportunity to learn more about how his mind works right um three more i would like to sit down with mother Teresa. I see a lot of myself in her and um, I want to know how she did it without slapping a motherfucker. (laughs) That would, that would be cool. Um, Two more. Um, I can't remember his name, but he is the gentleman who started, he started in India and he started a small banking system. So he was lending people like a hundred dollars in Two hundred dollars. His name is something like Muhammad Kunis. Okay. He wrote a book. He's an amazing brain, and he really helped transform um, wealth in poor communities because he was lending people money so that they could start farms and buy a goat and sell milk and like entrepreneurialism at its like most basic, basic, basic. Right. And then, um, oh, I have one more? I would probably, my mom passed in 2014, so I would probably love to sit down with her one more time, but I would want to know, what's it like on the other side?
1: Right, That right.
0: was a little more woo-woo.
1: Right, right, right. No, that, I, I, I get it, though. I get it. I get it. Yeah, Michael X is definitely on my list. Um, yeah. I, would've, I, would've won I would lo- I'd lo- I'd love to have had a conversation with um Sam Cook. Ooh. And just kind of his, you know, his entrepreneurial spirit at the time when that wasn't the yeah. thing. Um, I probably would also would love to have had a conversation with um, a young Martin Luther King. Like what at 26 did you see to where you felt like I'm going to be the face of change? Right. And, and kind of talk to him about his legacy now since he's been gone, right? Since right. kind of been gone more than he's been alive. So. Like to see, this is what you, this is what your legacy was. And um right. and I would I would love to had had a chance to work with Curtis Mayfield. Mm. Just because I just thought he was just a brilliant musician. So genius. Yeah. Those people that I would, you know, love to talk to. So, but uh Wendy, I appreciate Great. it. This has been helpful, helpful for for those younger artists who kind of need somewhere to start. Um, people like you are necessary, man. I appreciate it and whatever i can do to help better your thing you let me know
0: i will thank you so much and thanks for having me i love you to death and i love what you're doing and thank you for doing this because you're not making money doing this you're doing this out of the love yes i really really appreciate you doing this
1: yeah i appreciate you thanks so much uh the
0: feeling is mutual and uh, take care thank you love i love you be safe out there love you too okay bye you are listening to the bu podcast with michael errington
1: That's right. We're back. We podcast. You got Mike Arrington. Um, so, yeah, that was my guest Wendy Day, man. I want to thank her for, you know, taking out the time, man, Figuring out the time zone. I know she's super busy. I'm super, super busy, but we were able to make it work, man. I hope this, this conversation was beneficial for those up-and-coming artists or those artists who've been in the game and just didn't have an understanding of what uh, some of the ins and outs of the business is. Like I said, man, knowledge is power. The more you know, the better off you'll be. Just know, like a wise man once told me, uh, I think it was Quincy Jones told me once, it's the record business, not the artist business. So the record company is, they would like to be the end all be all, right? And so if you at a point to where you're good enough or popular enough to get a record deal, know your worth, you know, know how to negotiate for you, right? If you've already... Build up a following and you you know, SoundCloud is popping, YouTube is popping, and Spotify is popping, right? They really kind of understand what it is you need a label for and then how they can help you be you. Right? Not necessarily because uh, their goal is to make money. So remember that. Their goal is to make money, not make you make money. Their goal is to make the most the most money they can. So, um, know what percentages means, know what ownership means, know what publishing is, know what composing versus producing is, it's important. Right? And so these are just kind of little tidbits and information that can help you, you know, kind of get further or at least dig deeper so you can get a better understanding for yourself and for your career. Like again, man, I want to appreciate, you know, Wendy Day for coming through. You want to get at her, get at uh, at rap coalition on Instagram. And you can get all her information from there her videos and her podcast super duper dope super duper insightful uh, I tune in a lot just because I just you know either refreshers for me or this new stuff because she's always up on the new stuff and what that looks like man so uh, appreciate y'all tapping in BU podcast Mike Arrington until the next time
0: Peace. you are listening to the BU podcast with Michael Arrington